still missing some people? Lunchtime? They're missing us. Shoosh. Oh. Where were we? We went up in the whirlwind with Elijah. <laughs> the whirlwind. I feel like uh, I'm like the chipmunks. I'm moving so fast. I'm like, hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to pray. Jesus gives you a chipmunk anointing. And flow with me. I almost went through all through lunch. You would have been so proud of me 15 minutes ago. I didn't have anything on my shirt. <laughs> but then I got touched by the anointing. Um, Jesus, we just pray that you would just help us. <laughs> just to open our eyes, cause our spirit to be awakened. <laughs> Our food to be digested peacefully. Yes, we break the power of the growling one. <laughs> we just pray for your anointing to be on our eyes to see, ears to hear. Amen. Now, the first day you wouldn't have laughed. You'd be like, is he serious? He saw something growling in me. So, okay, um, let's see, where were we? We were talking about um, uh, operating under apostolic mantle, remember that? And I think, did we end with this? Did we end with uh, Aaron? I uh, know, with uh, Moses, did we end with that? I think we did. And Joshua's victories. And uh, Yeah, and I said to you, you can always tell when you're operating out of someone else's mantle because when you stop supporting them, you start losing. Remember that? And so um, I want to talk to you just a little bit about the fact that uh, you, uh, that there are mantles. And what is a mantle? Um, mantles are the grace for a mission that God has called the senior leader, senior prof- apostle, senior prophets to. And here's what I mean. A mantle stays with the mission, but the anointing stays with a man. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. When, um, when, when someone receives a mantle, that mantle is for a mission. For instance, I believe that President Bush has a mantle. Now, the mantle that he, the mantle that he has on him gives him grace. Remember grace? We talked about grace. The mantle that he has on him gives him grace for the presidency. When he leaves the presidency, the mantle will not go with him. The anointing on his life will stay with him. But the mantle will stay with the presidency. It will stay with the mission. Therefore, the next president will come in, and when he gets inaugurated and commissioned, that mantle will fall on him or her, and they will receive an ability to do what they couldn't do one second before they had the mantle. So the mantle stays with the mission, but the anointing stays with the man. So sometimes people will come and they'll say, uh, some of you may have had this happen. It happens to me fairly often. They'll say, can I have your mantle? You, listen, um, remember that Elijah, now I'll, I'll tell you the, the Reader's Digest version of this. In 1 Kings 19, yeah, 1 Kings 19.13, Elijah comes out in the cave. I, I don't want to tell you this whole story. It's, it's, it's not where I'm going. Anyway, God tells Elijah, 
to anoint Elisha in his place. Do you remember that? He goes out, he throws the mantle on him, and then he walks away. Now, this is pretty important. He walks away. And the part I didn't want to tell you is the whole thing about God meeting him in the cave. That's, that's not where we're going. It just takes too long. But he meets, the, he meets Elijah, Elisha, he meets Elisha, and he throws the mantle on him, and he walks away. And Elisha says, hey, wait, 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 I'll follow you. Wait, wait, let me go bury my dad. I'll be right back. And Elijah says to him, what did I do to you? What did I do to you? Now, uh, this, is, this is pretty important. He throws his mantle on him. He doesn't say, this is the mantle of the prophet. You know, you know what his mantle is? I mean, his mantle, I mean, we're talking about spiritually what the mantle is, but, but naturally he threw his coat on him, right? He just threw his coat on him and walked away. And so, you know, uh, Elijah, Elisha follows him. Now, we know that his, he got his mantle back. Elijah got his mantle right back. We know that. Why? Because at the end of Elijah's life, when Elijah wants a double portion, he says, if you see me when I go up, what happens? He goes up and what falls? The mantle. Okay, so we know that Elisha, Elisha, the son, got a taste of the mantle. He got a taste. But he didn't get to keep it. We know that because at the end of Elijah's life, Elijah has the mantle back. Are you following me? Yeah. Okay, so, so Elijah gets the mantle, and, um, gets the mantle back, and then uh, at the end of his life, he goes up, and the, Elisha says to him, you know, I, I, I'd like to have a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says to Elisha, well, that's pretty hard, but if you see me when I go up, you can have it. And then you know what happens. He tries to ditch him. Now, that's a very important part of the story. He says, you know, wait right here. I've got to go to the bathroom. And he goes, oh, oh, no. No way. No way. No, I know. You'll go right through that. No. <laughs> that ain't working for me. And you know the story. I'm giving you the short version so we can cover a lot. He spends, I think, well, a whole day trying to ditch him. And then finally, um, he goes up. And when he goes up, Elisha sees him, and he says, what? My father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. And what happens? The mantle falls. Now, you'll notice, uh, and we're not reading it for the sake of time, but a very important part of this is in 2 Kings uh, chapter 9. The story is 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, verse 9, I mean. Uh, a very important part of the story, it says, um, I'm sorry, it's... Uh, the actual uh, receiving is, is in verse 11 and 12, 13. It says, Then he took hold of his own clothes. I'm sorry, let me tell you a story. Elisha sees him uh, go up, verse 12. Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. He saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, tore them in two pieces, and he took the mantle of Elisha that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the, of the Jordan. Now, uh, there's several things about this story I want you to know because I want to talk to you about passing mantles, working under a mantle, and what that is. Okay, first of all, when he received the mantle, when Elisha received the mantle, did you notice that he took his clothes and tore them in half? In other words, he had to leave his old identity because he's about to receive a new identity. Sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to move over to move up, and sometimes you have to release yourself from your old identity to come into your new identity. 
in God. So, what I'm getting at is sometimes your old identity is actually keeping you from your new identity. Okay? So, and then he receives the mantle. Now, the, the second part of the story that, that's going to become important in a minute is the words that he says. He says, my father, my father. Notice that he didn't say, my prophet, my prophet, my friend, my friend, or anything else he could have possibly said. He said, my father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. Okay? And, he, and the mantle falls. And, you know, he comes to the, the Jordan, and he says, where is the God of Elijah? And he takes the mantle, and he hits it, and the, the river parts. And the, and the sons of the prophets are standing by the river, and they say this, the spirit that was on Elijah is on Elisha. Now, just a little side note for some of you who are coming into your anointing and you're in a, a new ministry. Then they, the sons of the prophets say this. They say, let's go see if we can find Elijah because he's maybe on top of some mountain someplace. And Elisha says, no, he's gone. And they go, yeah, well, we still want to go look for him. So you know the next few, ch- few verses are them looking for Elijah, and they, of course they don't find him. Now, why is that? Well, there's probably several reasons. But one is, you know, Elijah is a bald man, and Elisha is a hairy man. And sometimes the Lord brings us into the same anointing, the same spirit, but it looks different. <laughs> and uh, many times we like we like to have Jesus the way we are accustomed to having Jesus, and he comes to us in a different form. And we want it in the form we're accustomed to. I might say the word formula. <laughs> you know what? If, if David is going to whip Goliath, you know, finally he convinces the king. Well, I believe I can whip that guy, and the king's trying to talk him out of it. Oh, no, you, you know, she's this aware. Finally, the king says, oh, you can go here, put my clothes on. How many of you know if someone's going to have a victory we're afraid to have, we at least want them to do it the way we've been teaching? It's a Selah. <laughs> Don't have a victory some other way, you know, that renewal thing. We've been teaching against that. Don't go kill the giant with something we haven't been teaching. So... Anyway, did you get that? So, and, and then he goes on. So it goes on. And Elisha has the, you know, the double portion and da, da, da. And fast forward now. And now it's coming to the end of Elisha, Elisha's life. The end of Elisha's life. And it says this in 2 Kings 13. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said. Now listen to this. What is he going to say? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, think about that. Why is he saying that? Elisha's not going up in a chariot. Okay, let me read you the first line. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, then Joash, the king of Israel, came to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What's he looking for? The mantle. So you've got to know that that had to be a popular story by then. I mean, it's in the Bible. Probably that got passed down from generation to generation before it ever got written. I mean, it's a popular story that when Elisha left, when Elisha left for heaven, he left the mantle. How did Elijah, how did, no, Elijah, I mean, how did Elisha get it? 
He said, my father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. Okay, now Elisha's about to leave earth. King knows the story. What's he looking for? Yeah, he sees this guy running around the country, right? Parting rivers, doing miracles, raising dead people. He finds out he's about to die. What's he, not, what's he looking for? <laughs> Wonder if I could get that thing. Okay, now what happens? Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took the bow and arrows, and then he said to him, the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow, and he put his hand on the bow, and then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hand, hands, and he said, open the window towards the east, and he opened it, and Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, now listen to this, this is very important. The Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Armin, for you will defeat the Armenians at uh, Aplek, until you have destroyed them. Okay, now that's very important. Okay, he said, these are the Lord's arrows of victory. Then he says to him, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Armin until you have destroyed him. But now... You shall strike Armin only three times, and Elisha died. And they buried him, and now a band of Moabites uh, would invade the land in the spring of the year. And as they were burying a man, behold, the man, uh, they saw a, a band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he, re- he re- revived and stood to his feet. Now, I want to propose to you that that wasn't a good thing. The mantle that was supposed to be passed died in the ground with Elisha. That's why when they threw dead man in his, in his tomb, he rose from the dead because he created no legacy. But the interesting thing is, how is the legacy supposed to pass? Okay, think about it. Elisha, Elijah throws his mantle on Elisha, walks away. Doesn't say anything to him. Elijah follows him. Elisha follows him and says... You know, wait for me. I remember this whole story. Wait, wait, wait. I'll, I'll follow you. Wait, let me bury my mom and dad. And then what's he do? He kills his 12 ox, 24 oxen, actually, 12 teams. He kills his 24 oxen. He can't, what's he done? He's burned his bridges. He has no way to go back. It's called faith. He's, take, he's taken away his ability to make a living. He's fallen Elijah. And then he says to Elijah, you know, I like to have a double portion. Elijah says to Elisha, if you see me when I go up, and then what does he do? This is very important. He tries to ditch him. Listen, this is part of the story. He tries to ditch him on purpose. He tries to get rid of him. Elijah says, Elisha says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Keeps his eye on the chariot. You know, the, I don't know, you know what story I believe about what uh, these chariots and all that, but somehow he keeps his eye on Elijah when he, Elijah when he goes up. A mantle falls to him. Now the king, Elijah's, Elisha's about to die. The king says, the, the horses and chariots, it, my father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. He's looking for the mantle. What has Elisha been taught to do? Give him a test. He had to give him a test. How did he know to do that? Elijah taught him that. Okay, here's, here it goes. What is the test? He says, these, and listen, I want, I want to tell you something. 
he gave him a much easier test than Elijah gave. Elisha gave the king a much easier test than, than, Elijah, than Elijah gave Elisha. Because he gave him a hint. These are the arrows of victory over your enemy. Elijah didn't give Elisha any hint. Just throw a mantle on him and walked away. Didn't say a word to him. I want to propose to you, Elisha's trying to pass the mantle. He's given him the answers to the questions on the test before he gives him the test. These, look, these are the arrows of victory. Do you have something you want to share on? Come on. Let me finish this one part. What is the test? He hits the ground three times. Oh, oh no. What have you done? Or what haven't you done? You should have hit the ground four or five times. Then you would have had a permanent victory. What's the test? You have to see what can't be seen before you can do what can't be done. Did you get that? You have to see what can't be seen before you can do what can't be done. Listen, here's the test. Can you see... No, start over. Do you have a value for the realm of the invisible? Can you see on a man who looks totally human something you need? See, I think that what Jacob deceived his father out of, Israel, remember he, he, he deceived his father out of I think what Jacob deceived his father out of, most people don't even know there's such a thing. And so we're living in sowing and reaping instead of inheritance because we've made everybody equal. We've taken away the seat of honor and we can't see what can't be seen and therefore we can never do what can't be done. And revival never lasts two generations because we refuse to honor the generation that's before us. In fact, we make statements like revival's coming from the youth when in fact, that is not true. Wow, that's good. And all the old people said, Amen. Come on, baby. Okay, now I'm not just jumping up here, but Chris and I Come wanted on. to try and Absolutely. team teach a little bit. So this is an experiment. But as he was sharing this, this was so good. Wasn't it great? But that's actually the second time that Elisha failed to pass his mantle. He tried a time before. So let me just take it to you real quick. Remember how Elisha, what was his job description under Elijah? It says that he actually poured water on the hands of Elijah. Okay, do you remember that? So he was known as a servant. That comes from 2 Kings 3.11. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? And an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And so again, he was known as the servant okay, of Elijah. Who was the servant of Elisha? Gehazi. Okay? Gehazi was his servant. Do you know what Gehazi means? It means Valley of the Visionaries. That's what his name means. And so you've got Elijah, one who is like God, passing it on to Elisha with a double portion. And then he brings a servant under him who just happens to be named Valley of the Visionaries. 
What is the potential of passing on the mantle to someone whose very name is Valley of the Visionaries? And so he's got Gehazi serving underneath him. And, uh, and I believe that he also tried to pass that mantle on. Now, see, I didn't see this thing with the king of how he tried to pass it. And I totally believe that, that he was trying to pass that, right? But here's another, what I believe is a failed attempt at passing the mantle. The first one's in 2 Kings 4.29. And Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. And Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy has not awakened. Now, in I believe... That Eli- and this is my opinion, but I believe that Elisha was trying to train him how to use his anointing. The staff represents his authority, and he also had his word saying, go lay this on him, and this is what's going to happen. But you know what was missing in the equation? You have to appropriate your faith with somebody else's authority and somebody else's word, or it will not work. Do you understand that that's true? That somebody can give you the authority in a situation, they can give you a word, but if you don't appropriate personal faith, that this will work through me. And I'll tell you what, if you have more faith in the person who gave you the authority and in their word than the fact that it will work in you, it won't work in you. You have to appropriate it in a personal way. And so here's the first Failure of Gehazi is a failure to appropriate his own faith and anointing for what was being passed to him. The second thing happens in 2 Kings 5 and 20. And that's when Naaman is healed. And we went through that story the other day. Uh, But while Naaman is healed, it says, Gehazi the servant, this is chapter 5, verse 20, book of 2 Kings. Gehazi the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman. This Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought, as surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. And so uh, the second thing that Gehazi did is he put a price tag on the ministry. And uh, whenever you put a price tag on the ministry, it, it is going to have a limiting effect on how much the anointing can flow through you. And the price tag on the ministry is not always financial. When you put an affirmation price tag on your ministry, when you need something from the person that you are ministering to, it's going to discolor and taint that ministry. And so here's another second failed attempt. And remember, who brought the word out to Naaman? It wasn't Elisha. Elisha never even came out of the tent. He sent Gehazi out with the word. It was another opportunity to appropriate the anointing. Because, guys, look at the potential of this. Elijah, okay, passed on a double portion anointing to Elisha. What would have happened in the third generation? Now, I want to just say, I don't believe that would have happened was another double portion. What I believe would have happened was an exponential increase. 
When you look at things in the word of God in the first generation, you have a Abraham to Isaac situation, one to one. In the second generation, you have an Isaac to Jacob and Esau. That is multiplication. But in the third generation, you have Israel and his 12 sons. That's exponential increase. And the reason that the enemy always attacks things in the third generation is because the double portion does not reproduce a double portion. It reproduces exponential increase. And that's why there was so much war in the time of Jerusalem against the second generation. There was more persecution after the original apostles of those that they were passing the mantle on to than there was even against the apostles themselves because the enemy knows the power of the third generation. That if it can ever get past a double portion into exponential increase, then the sons of God are going to be manifested in the earth. And so here's the, here's the third failure in Second Kings six fifteen to 17. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots... What were they? Horses and chariots. Had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid. The prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed. Oh, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. What did Chris just share about? Okay, being able to see into the unseen realm. And so here's the servant of Elisha. We are not sure in this case, we are not positive in this case that it was still Gehazi because there was a judgment against him in this second thing. We don't know exactly how chronological all these events are. So I do want to make that very clear. But the, the essence of what is being said is the same, okay? And that is, notice the emphasis on seeing in Elisha's life, okay? Seeing was part of the transfer. Elisha had not only seen Elijah go, but he saw the chariots of fire without being prayed for. By walking with and serving the man of God, somewhere along the line, he had gained the ability to see into supernatural realms. And so what happens to the Valley of Visionaries? What happens to Gehazi, who potentially could have had an exponential portion of this anointing? In Second Kings chapter 8, we find out. We see Gehazi at the right hand of the king telling stories about all the experiences of Elisha. Okay, he's sitting in the court, and now he's just telling stories about what used to be. When you fail to appropriate your anointing and personal faith, when you compromise your gifting and sell out, when you fail to see and hear what God is doing, then you become a chronicle of the presence rather than a carrier of the presence. You're not the one who's living the stories. You're just the one who's telling the stories. And so I do, what Chris just shared was so incredible. I haven't seen that before about how he tried to pass it to the king. Because I used to think, well, after this failed, you know, Elisha just starts getting depressed and, and some bad stuff happens. But he did try to pass it off one more time. And I agree, the last thing you want is to die with your anointing in your bones. So I'm going to turn it back to Chris. That's awesome. Man, that was a great. That was great. 
So, here's the bottom line for you. You usually are going to operate out of someone else's mantle for a season, and you're going to serve that mantle, even though you have, even though you have an anointing of your own, That's you're going right. to be serving someone else's mantle. That's right. So you're like, well, I am a prophet. Okay, that's good. Elisha was a prophet from the day he was called. But he was in training, and he served under someone else's mantle. And, um, and so this is good for those of you that are senior people, those of you that are senior prophets, um, that you need, you, you, need an Eli, you need an Elisha. You need somebody who can, every once in a while, every once in a while, maybe very often, where you go, here, do it this way, Go. <laughs> The struggle I see is that um, here, here's several struggles. One is well, when Elisha sends Elijah out to do something and it works, pretty soon Elisha thinks he has his own ministry, doesn't need Elijah anymore. Bummer for him. The secondly, I want to I uh, say that there's a lot of people that have an anointing that aren't operating out of anyone's mantle, and the mantle is for the mission, and so they're missionless. So when someone comes and says, can I have your mantle? No, that will be passed down when I die or when, the man, or when the mission is complete. When the mission is complete, the mantle will die or it will, die, or it will be passed before I die. I'll either pass it to somebody or uh, the mission will be completed. So I can't pass people my mantle because I won't have a mission. You follow me? Now, this is Chris's opinion. Are you ready? This gets a little bit more complicated, and I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to bring a principle that I believe to be really true. I think there are levels of mantles. And I think that, um, I think that there's apostolic mantles. And I think that apostolic mantles are a greater mantle than a prophetic mantle, than the office of a prophet. So let me see if I can make this clear. Not every prophet has a mantle. I believe every, every prophet needs to live under a mantle. I believe that every prophet should live under an apostolic mantle. Now, you know, that eliminates three-quarters of you. So it's like, how do I get from here to there? Well, you're on a journey, aren't you? Okay, so am I doing something wrong? No, it's not a matter of doing something wrong. It's a matter of not doing something right. There is a difference. Remember when um, Abraham got prophesied to? The first prophecy he ever got was leave the Chaldeans to a place, what? I'll show you. If you talked to Abraham the day after his word and you said, where are you going? He couldn't tell you. Because he didn't know where he was going. He just knew where he couldn't stay. Did you get that? Some of you like, well, I don't know who to, you know, where do I find this mantle? Well, I don't, I can't tell you individually where to find those. I can tell you where to not stay. There you go. <laughs> now, some of you go, oh, you know what? The Lord has already shown me. This is a great confirming word. I need to really get in submission to that, to that mantle's mission. And some of you, but some of you are like, oh, I don't know where to go. Okay, that's fine. But what you heard today is where you can't stay. And that's a good start. Do you understand? And I love what, what uh, Dan shared. I think it was yesterday. 
I, I, I got my notebook out and wrote notes. It was amazing. When he, remember when he's talking about the video game? And he was talking about that you can take a shortcut, but then you can't kill the, what was it? The enemy? And it's like, so, and he was talking about how the journey prepares you for the destiny. Sometimes the Lord blinds your eyes on purpose to where you're going because in your prophetic wanderings, you'll pick up the skills, the gifts, the callings, the anointings so that when you get to the destiny, you can actually come into your promised land. And I'll tell you, and I know that Dan agrees with this, you can make the journey longer. But you cannot make it shorter. Yeah, you can make it longer by trying to make it shorter. That's a good. That's a really good point. You can make the journey longer by trying to make it shorter. But you can't make it. You you can't make it shorter. I mean, there is a process. You, you know, a great example of somebody who made the journey shorter was King Saul. I honestly believe that Saul was a good man in the beginning. And the people called for a king before God had prepared his king. I mean, actually, King David was in the loins of his, of his father. And he wasn't even born yet when, God, when they called for Saul, my understanding is. But... They called for a king before God had prepared a king. And so what happened? Saul had to become Saul had no process in his life to become king. And what happened? He had to go through the process while he carried the weight of his kingship and it killed him. And I propose to you that David was was learning in the wilderness while he wasn't leading people. He said, I killed the lion and I killed the bear. My opinion is he probably didn't kill the first lion and the first bear. If he's anything like me, probably went through several. (laughs) Probably went through several before they didn't kill him. You know what I'm saying. I'm just saying it doesn't typically like, oh, the first time I saw a lion, I went out and killed them and I had a victory. He probably went out after the lion a few times before he finally figured out how to kill a lion and kill the bear. Or, you know, have you ever ran out after something? Like, it's like a dog chasing a car. Have you ever stopped when a dog's chasing a car? A dog does not know what to do with the car once he catches it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have you ever chased a car like that? You're like, oh, yeah, this is my destiny. And then you get it, and you're like, what do I do? <laughs> it's so funny, you know, when Saul gets anointed king, did you notice what he does? He goes back to, <laughs> there's our king. <laughs> What's he doing? He's, he's plowing in the field. Why? He didn't know what to do. He's never seen a king before. Israel's never had a king. There's our king. Isn't he awesome? That crown looks so beautiful on him. What's he doing? He's plowing his field. Why? He don't know what else to do. He's got no castle. But isn't it true? I mean, what do you do when someone anoints you prophet? You've never had, a, you've never, you're not being mentored by anyone. You don't know what to do. You know, call your mother, give her a word. See how that works out for you, you know? But you know what I mean. It's like, what do you do? 
here I am, I are one. Someone's going to call me and tell me to prophesy over me. You know, it's like, what do you do, you know? So, uh, well, yeah. Um, so, but here's the, here's the issue. Can you see what can't be seen? Do you have a value? Do you have a value for, can you assess, discern a, an anointing, a mantle on someone else? Do you have the courage to believe that, that somebody actually has something you don't have? I want to tell you that we have done, uh, I hope I don't get crucified, we have done a total disservice to the leadership of the church of Jesus. We have made the, the government of God a democracy. <laughs> and that is a mistake. And there's good reasons why we have, because the people who we trusted to lead us, we found out they were immoral, they were embezzling money, and so on and so forth. So what did we do? We changed the leadership structure to handle a heart problem. And that's what they did when they chose Saul as king. Remember, it says that Samuel, the prophet, had two sons. Remember, Samuel was the second of Israel's prophets, at least its name, a judges. Eli was the first, remember? Or Eli was a judge. I don't know if he's first. Forget all that. Eli was his mentor. And Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. What was the problem? They were both wicked. Remember that? They were raping the women at the, at the, at the temple, and, I mean, at the um, tabernacle, and so on and so forth. So what happened? Samuel's the one who actually brings the word to him. Hey, you're both, you're all going to die in the same day. And actually, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, uh, it's a great lesson because Eli dies the same day because God says you did not correct your sons. And the fact is, He did tell His sons to stop, but they didn't, and God still held them accountable. How many of you know not everything's your fault, but when you're a leader, things that aren't your fault are still your responsibility. That's a selah. Let me tell you something. If you Make things not your... If you don't take responsibility for things just because they're not your fault, you aren't a leader. If you won't take responsibility for things that aren't your fault, you aren't leading. Because leaders are responsible for things that aren't their fault. And one of the first levels of leadership is you take responsibility for other people's actions. I don't mean you don't hold them accountable inside the house. But I mean outside the house, you are responsible for things that you aren't your fault. When I have, you know, my son, and we were always talking to our, our kids about, don't play baseball in the front yard. You know, we got all this property, you got to play baseball in the front yard. And what's he do? He hits a baseball, goes through the neighbor's window, their, their little infant is in Right there, on the, in the window, in a, in a bassinet. The ball goes right over her head, and the glass crashes all around her. Thankfully, she didn't get hurt. Guess what? When the neighbor came over, quite angry, I might add, it doesn't do any good to say, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault, but guess what? It's definitely my responsibility. And if I'm going to be leading, I'm going to be responsible for things that aren't my fault. 
one of your prophetic team members does something really stupid. And you, instead of taking responsibility, you go, I'll talk to them and have them get back to you. That's fine. But you're not going to lead that way. You might say, I'll talk to them and we will get back to you because this happens to be our problem. And as long as it isn't our problem and it's their problem and not our problem, guess what? The problem will never actually get solved because you have made it someone else's problem. That's why Jesus said, pray this way, our Father, forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread because we are responsible for people besides ourselves. And let me say this. How big is your church going to be? Well, you can always tell how big your church is supposed to grow to because when you pray our Father, who are you talking about? You'll never get more than you've been praying for. You'll never get more than you've taken responsibility for. You want the whole city? When you say our, do you mean the whole city or do you mean us, me, and my three? Oh, I'd like to have the whole city. But are you taking responsibility for things that go wrong there already? No, we're not. That's why you don't have the whole city. You'll never get more than you take responsibility for. There was a murder in your city. Oh, well, you know, those people, they murdered. Oh, those are your people. You want more people? Start taking responsibility for things that aren't your fault. It's amazing how you'll find solutions for them when they're in your house, when they're in your city, when it's your problem. Are you guys all right? Okay. See, if you begin to take responsibility for the invisible, it's amazing how it becomes visible. You know, we were in Costco the other day, and I said, man, so Kathy was with me. I said, look at all of our people. She, where are you talking about? I said, these people, they're all our people. Oh, they don't know it yet. It's amazing. We have a lot of buildings. Our church owns a lot of buildings in this community. We don't even pay the rent on Like Costco pays the rent on our building over there. And <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But our people go there all the time, so they're housing our people take care of many thousands square feet are you getting that if we're gonna if god's gonna give us nations we ought to probably practice with one city (laughs) we'll see how that works out for us you know what the heck was i talking about before we start all this taking responsibility oh the invisible oh yeah i'll start to tell you about the invisible like Oh, this church has done a great disservice. We've made a democracy. But you know, well, you know what happened in Saul's life? Okay, so we had Eli. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel becomes his kind of surrogate son, like his adopted son, right? Okay, and Samuel's a good prophet. I mean, he's a great prophet, actually, one of the great successes in all of Israel's history. But Samuel has two sons. It's amazing. Samuel, it's amazing. Eli uh, mentors Samuel. Eli has two sons who are both... I mean, evil men is what the Bible says. And it's funny because Samuel becomes a great prophet, like Eli seemingly was a good prophet. Samuel becomes a great prophet, but he has two sons. And how many of you know, both his sons are wicked. He didn't learn fatherhood from Eli, did he? 
he repeated Eli's sins and his own sons. So now the, the, the elders of Israel say they know that Samuel's sons are wicked. And it says this, because Samuel's sons were wicked, I'm at, I, I am adding my own words to this, but you can look it up. Because Samuel's sons were wicked, they asked for a king. Now, that seems like a righteous response to me. I mean, they're like, hey, we don't want wicked people leading us because we'll go back into the dark ages. That's not a plan. And God says, and when when they tell Samuel, hey, you know, we don't want your sons ruling us. How about we have a king like other nations? It it feels a little bit, when you read the story, like we don't want to hurt Samuel's feelings and not have his sons lead us. So why don't we just tell Samuel we'd like to have a king instead. So Samuel goes and talks to God, and God says this. They haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Now, you have to read the whole story. I'm not doing it justice. But it feels to me like, well, that's funny because they're just trying to keep wicked people from ruling them. And God's mad. And what's God mad about? He's mad because they changed the leadership structure to handle a heart problem. And I want to propose to you the church has done the same thing. We've had wicked people leading us, so we don't want to give too much power to somebody or some people. We don't want to have a group of elders leading us. Oh, no. You know, uh, we, we, you know, how about Jimmy Baker? How about, you know, Jimmy Swaggart? How about, you know, I, I, I'm not saying, I'm just saying that because they're public people. You know, Jimmy Baker's doing awesome, by the way. I spent a couple of days with him two or three years ago. He's an amazing man. Thank God for redemption. That's what we believe in. That's the business we're in, redemption. I, I'm just using those as public figures you know about, and there's, you know, there's hundreds of people who have fallen. We believed in these men. They believed in these women. They led us. We, we followed them, and then we found out they were not moral. They were not honest. They had problems. And so we go, okay, we'll never let that happen again, and we changed the structure so we won't have that again. How many of you know democracy has never kept wickedness out of anything? I mean, we have abortion, 40 million babies in America, that was democracy got us that. So, I mean, you know, there's no such thing as a structure that keeps evil men from influencing anything. I don't care what kind of structure you put around it. If you have evil people leading, you're going to pay the price for that. When the wicked rule, the people mourn. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. It doesn't matter what structure you put them in. Got me? So you can't be protected by a structure. Well, you know, we let all the people vote. Well, how's that working out for you? I can, I can take you around the country and show you dead church after dead church after dead church that have a complete democracy. So, uh, all, uh, listen, this isn't really about what kind of structure you have. This is really about do you honor people ahead of yourself. <laughs> that's, what I, that, that's, that's my point today. Because if you don't, you're living off of leaf, reaping and sowing. What's that mean? It means you're getting what you can produce. And you're not living with an inheritance. The bummer for you is, is that you're, ha- you're getting, you're working for what you could get for free. And the, bummer, and the second bummer is, you're, because that's happening in your life, it's likely to be re- repeated in the life of your children, and they're likely to work for something they could have got from you for free. And nobody ever has a multi-generational blessing because everybody starts over. Because in order to receive a mantle, you have to honor someone to get it. 
And in order to actually honestly honor somebody, you can pretend honor, but to really honor, honor means I see something in your life that's greater than I see in my own. Do you know uh, Hebrews 6 says the laying on of hands is the elementary principle of Christ? Did I teach you this the first day? It's the elementary principle of Christ, and it says, leaving the elementary principles of Christ, and it says, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. You know what they're talking about in the laying on of hands in the book of Hebrews? The Jewish person saw the laying on of hands not for healing. And as a matter of fact, you know the only place they laid hands that you're instructed to lay hands for healing is in the book of James. It says, let the elders gather, let them anoint them with oil, and lay hands on them. Do you know why James said that? He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's a Jew. It would make total sense that he would say that because the Jews saw inheritance passing through the hands. And James knew that healing is in the atonement and it's part of our inheritance. And he said, when you're sick, you need the rest of your inheritance. And they saw it passing through the hands. Listen to this. In his case, I understand it's broadened, but in his case, of the elders. Why the elders? Because James saw the elders as having something other people didn't have. They were passing the inheritance. They said, you're sick. You must have not got the Father's blessing. You must have not received all of your inheritance. Are you, get, are you getting this? That means you have to see what can't be seen. In other words, you look at, you know, so-and-so, and you know, your pastor, your senior leader, and you go, yeah, he's a nice guy, but he's got this problem, he's got that, and, the, and we crucify him when we get home. Um, I'll probably, I, I, I hope I don't offend you, but the Catholic Church knows something we don't know. I, I want to say that I believe there's a time coming when just like we have repented to the American Indian, I believe that the Protestant Church is going to repent to the Catholics because I believe we've dishonored our fathers. Here we go. You go, but our fathers got screwed up. Well, tell it to Noah because he got drunk and got naked and his son came in and exposed him and got cursed because he uncovered him instead of covered him. And you know that's how we got the land. That's why the Canaanites were driven out of the land because they were the, they were the sons of Ham. That's why they got driven out of the land, because their father exposed Noah's nakedness. Their father told the truth instead of extending mercy. Did you get that? They dishonored their father and got a curse instead of honoring their father and getting life. And the Catholic Church, what do they call their leaders? Fathers, do you know in the Catholic Church, when we go, when people come to our church, we're always concerned. They like the, they like the message. Did they like the message? Did they like the nursery? Did they like our program? How many of you know? You go to a Catholic church in the 70s, the sermons in Latin. It's not your language. 
Do you know how much courage it takes to preach a a sermon that nobody is going to (laughs) hear? What's that tell you? Listen, think about this. What's the core value of somebody who isn't performing so you'll come? He's got to think you're coming for some other reason. Why would you come? You come to honor. Do you ever talk to a Catholic? They may never go to church, but talk about the Pope. Boy, they're ready to fight you. They haven't a clue what they have a clue what they believe. But they have inherited something. What is it? Honor. I don't know. You may not like this. They don't come to their father's house because their father uh, entertains them. They come there because they honor him. Do <laughs> you know what we're called? Protestants. You know what that word comes from? Protester. Do you know how many church splits the Catholic Church has had? Very few. Over hundreds of years. Do you know how many we have? Thousands. Why? We were born in a church split. We're proud of it. We even called ourselves protesters. We have, listen to this, our movement has been born in dishonor. Now, I'm not saying Martin Luther did something wrong. I don't know what the heck I would have done. I'm reporting history. I'm not telling you he did something wrong. I'm just saying that what he did, what they did, what all those reformers did, is they, they split. They protested the belief system and left. And all I'm reporting to you is, isn't it funny that every time we don't agree, we leave? That's all I'm saying. And we wonder why there's no covenant. Have you ever noticed that the people that get born again in our church are bastards? Not loyal to anybody. Change the worship, we're leaving. Pastor goes out of town, we don't go to church. Why? We're the ones who taught them that. I want to propose to you it's a new day. That God's called us into a new thing. Are you guys, I'm being a little heavy, huh? Sorry, right after lunch and all. We're moving into a new wineskin. I want to tell you a little bit about it. Are you ready for this? Yeah. I can't read you. Are are you guys, uh, am I boring you or? Okay. I want to tell you a little bit about a wineskin. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of 22 pages. First of all, I believe a new wineskin is government. And I'll I'll tell you why. Um, You're going to get notes on this so you don't have to write this down. Mark 2.22, Jesus said, No one puts new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wine bursts the skins. Wine's lost, the wine is... uh, Skins as well. Okay, what is the wine and the wine skins? Real quickly. The wine is, I believe, the presence, the intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit that comes into a person's life and helps and makes them think differently. When someone drinks wine, what happens to them? They act outside of themselves. And I think, and Jesus said the, that, that intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming with alcohol, some of you have non-alcoholic wine. You're drinking, but it isn't changing your thinking. That's a Selah. 
Did you get that? <laughs> Man, I'll just, I, I just really I want to be purified. How many of you know the first time Jesus made wine, he made it in five pots? And those pots were what? For purification. How many of you know intoxication and purification flow together? He put the, poured the wine into five water pots where that were there for purification. He turned the water that was made for purification into intoxication. How many of you know purification and intoxication always flow together? If you let the Holy Spirit intoxicate you, you'll get the fruits of the Spirit, which are the things you're trying to get through discipline, you'll get through being intoxicated by the Holy Spirit. So, did you get that? <laughs> now, so that should make you interested in how do I get intoxicated? Well, he says, I pour that wine into new wineskins. What is the new wineskin? Well, I want to propose to you that the new wineskin is government, leadership. Now, I, I, I don't have time to develop this fully. So I'll give you a few quotes, and you can do the rest because you'll have notes. But Jesus talked about, you'll notice that three times Jesus says, no one pours new wine into new wineskins, old wineskins. You'll notice that the pretext is always the same in all three of the Gospels. Now, that's very uncommon. Those of you who, who are more on the theological side, it is common for Jesus to tell the same story in three or four Gospels, but the pretext is almost always different. You wonder if, it's, if he's telling the same people. But in this case, the pretext is all exactly the same, almost word for word. And the pretext is this. Why do your disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Then he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. What is the Pharisees and, and the disciples of John? What are they? their leadership from a former era. And he says, I'm pouring new wine skin. I'm pouring new wine into new wineskins. Who was he referring to? Disciples, his disciples. They said, how come your disciples don't fast? He said, they're in a new wineskin. They are the new wineskin and the wine. And the wine. He says, when I go away, when I go away, they'll fast. Why do you fast? You fast for the sense of the presence of God. When you lose it, you fast to get it back. You don't fast for things. You fast for him. So, okay, now, Acts 1, 14. Some of you are like, wait a second, wait a second. That's why I'm feasting. I have him. Anyway, something to think about. Some of you are like, you're fat enough. You ought to be fasting. Whatever. Hey, uh, Acts 1.14. These, with one, uh, one mind, were continually devoting themselves with prayer, along with the women, married, so on and so forth, la, da, da. Got it? Now, in the midst of that prayer meeting, we have Acts chapter 2, right? A Acts chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and what did they get? Okay, I'm fast forward. They got the intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit. Does everyone agree? Yeah. But one, So I've heard preached over and over and over that they prayed for 10 days, 120 of them, and in that prayer meeting... They caused chapter 2, which I partly agree with. But you'd never really hear anybody preach about 
when they prayed, God gave them something to do. What did they do? Peter gets a word in the prayer meeting. And here's the word. He says, Peter's this brethren, Peter says his brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who were arrested, um, who arrested Jesus. And he goes on to say that Judas needed to be replaced. It says he lost his office. That's where we get the word office of a prophet, office of apostle. He lost his office, and Peter goes on to say someone has to replace his office. Now, they choose, uh, they choose two men, and the lot falls to Matthias. Do you remember that? Once they choose Matthias, the very next verse is chapter 2, verse 1. I want to propose to you that when they finished the wineskin, the wine was poured out. And if you look, okay, and let me just give you a little bit more metaphor. You know in the New Jerusalem, there are 12 gates. Do you know that? And on, under the gates are foundation stones under each gate. And on the foundation stones are names written. The names of what? The 12 apostles. Okay, follow me for a minute. Do you realize that when Judas fell, you have 12 gates and 11 gatekeepers? Eleven is the number of access. That's why we had a disaster on nine, the number of the gifts. Eleven, the number of access. That's why the three planes that crashed all had the number eleven in them. Because when you have an eleven, you have a ripped wineskin. You have a place of access, a place. Did you get that? You have twelve gates. You need twelve watchmen. You need 12 elders in the 12 gates. I believe that when you complete the wineskin, God pours out the wine. You notice in the, in, the, in the tabernacle, I'm sorry, in the temple of Solomon, when did the Holy Spirit fall? When they finished. I know this is clicheish, but if we build it, he will come. How do I get intoxicated in the presence of God? Build your, start with your government. Develop your government. You guys are looking at me. Okay, now, I believe we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. What's the difference? I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version. You have, you're going to have notes. In denominationalism, denomination means divided nations. We've been called to disciple nations, not divide nations. Denomination means divided nations. What did they divide over? What are we divided over? We're divided over truth. In denominationalism, people divide around what they believe. They, they rally around truth. They actually divide around, around truth. So people actually go to church because of what they believe. You just have to think about it for a minute. This is hard. In apostleships, people, instead of Instead of, rally, instead of gathering around truth, people rally around fathers. Jesus told me uh, eight years ago, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a new wineskin. Because he said, if I was to pour out this new wine in an old wineskin, it will rip the wineskin. And Jesus is concerned about the old wineskin. He, he does honor the past. And he told me that he was going to pour out new revelation. 
And he said if he poured out new revelation in the old wineskin, it would definitely rip the wineskin. Why? Because people are gathered together because they agree. If you pour out new revelation on the core value of we're here because we agree, you can't help but destroy the wineskin. Because new revelation means there are going to be people who get it first, and they're going to say, we believe this, and we're going to go, that's not what we've always believed. But in apostleships, people rally around fathers. They're not there because they agree. They're there because they have the same dad. Suddenly, you can redefine terms. Like loyalty no longer means we agree because loyalty is tested not when we agree, but when we disagree. So now the terms are being redefined the way they were meant to be defined because we don't need control to keep people in our house because they're there because they say, Daddy. They hear the shepherd's voice in their life. Did you get that? In denominationalism, authority is educationally based. I go to seminary, I graduate with a degree, and now I are one. So when you go to get a job as a pastor in a denomination, what's the first thing to ask you? Where did you go to seminary? Why? Because authority, listen to this, follow me for a minute. I'm telling you that God honored it. Authority in denominationalism, authority from heaven and denominationalism is, was educationally derived. Can you imagine if you tried to superimpose that over Jesus' disciples? <laughs> Not one of them would qualify. <laughs> or Jesus himself. Malachi 4 talks about you know, the sons and, uh, fathers and sons returning. I want to propose to you that that's not just in the family unit, but it's in the family of God. And apostles give DNA. Spiritual fathers actually give their own DNA to their sons and daughters. I believe that apostles of today were the patriarchs of yesterday. There was 12 patriarchs. There was how many apostles in the beginning? Oh, you guys are so quiet. Are you processing or are you? Okay. God told me that um, he, he, he gave me everything I'm sharing with you right now. I didn't read out a book like the Lord gave this to me. So if you think it's wrong, you need to like, I could be wrong. <laughs> but I, I didn't get it from someone else. God told me that denominationalism is like the concubines of old. I asked him what he meant by that. Did you notice that in the Old Testament, the kings had concubines and they had wives? Now, it's kind of interesting that when David has sex with Bathsheba, God says that was a sin. But did you ever notice that David had hundreds of concubines? And God never said a word about the concubines? I think Solomon had like a thousand concubines or something. Do you know what a concubine was? A concubine was a woman who had, who her children had, did not carry the, the king's name, and the children had no inheritance. Now, you, you probably understand why that happened, because the, they were losing, the, you know, many men were dying in battle, so there was lots more women than they had men. They had no welfare system, and the sons took care of their parents. Are you following me? So if a woman had no son, 
She had no way to live in her old age. Once she got past the ability to work, she was doomed. So the kings would have uh, you know, intercourse with these women, and so they'd bring forth sons so their sons could take care of them. It was kind of like seen as an honor thing, like you know, welfare thing. You follow me? But their sons... <laughs> I'm not listening to you. Their sons... What? Did I say something wrong? So their sons, their children, they're not just their sons, but their children had no, did not carry the, the king's name, nor did they have an inheritance. And the Lord said, denominationalism was not my idea, but I allowed it, like I allowed the concubines. And so children were born, listen to this, outside of covenant in the concubine world. The children were not born in covenant. Now, how many of you know that God wanted children to be in, in, uh, born out of covenant? That's why he gave a woman a hymen. He gave her a sack of blood that has no other purpose. Scientists have not been able to define a purpose for a hymen, and it's the only part of a body that when it breaks, it will not heal. Why? Because God said, I want children to be only born out of covenant, and he provided the blood. And first the natural, then the spiritual. God never intended for us to have Christians, to give birth to Christians. He intended us to give birth to disciples, sons and daughters. Are you with me? He wanted us to be he wanted the church to be in covenant. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Do you know in the, that we we learned a lot in the 80s and 90s about the spirit of Jezebel. How many of you know that it was hard to pick up a book in the 80s and 90s, a Christian book that didn't have at least a chapter on Jezebel. And Jezebel was what? A false prophetess. Isn't that right? She was a false prophetess. And you know Jezebel, listen, Jezebel isn't a woman, and Jezebel isn't a personality type. Jezebel's a spirit that attaches itself to authority to control and manipulate it for their purpose. And it's more on men than it is on women in our day. I can tell you that right now. So, you know, every time you get a D woman, there's a Jezebel. I'd say that's more about your insecurity than it is about her, secu- her ability to be confident. Come on, Mordecai. Encourage Esther. You guys, uh, it's plowing time. Covenant. Here we go. So we're to be born out of covenant. Now, you know that we heard a lot about the spirit of Jezebel. Oh, the spirit of Jezebel goes out to the prophets. She's trying to kill the prophets. And we, you know, and we, and in fact, I, I have a, a little thing on Jezebel I was going to do sometime. We probably won't get time to do it before the week's out. And how Jezebel influences the prophets and tries to destroy the prophets. And what's the spirit of Jezebel? How does it look like? It looks like I have irrational fear. Remember? Elijah's running from her. He just killed the prophets of Baal. He's running from one woman. He's called fire down from heaven. He's running from one woman. I mean, all he has to do is stop for one minute and think, why don't I call fire down on her? Hello. This isn't rational. He's running from a woman. One woman. 
never dawns on him that he can just say, you know, you're dead. Right? But it's irrational fear. You can tell when Jezebel's around because you have irrational fear. Someone can talk to you. You can say, I know this doesn't... This isn't real, but it feels real, tastes real, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, but it isn't a duck. It really isn't a duck. It's not real. It feels real, though. But I want to propose to you there is a much more damaging spirit in the church than Jezebel. And it's the spirit of Judas. And that's the spirit of false apostles. And I want to tell you how they happen. There are hidden reeds in your love feast, feasting with you without fear, clouds without rain, wild, wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam like shame. Remember Judas, remember Judas? Jesus said, one of you will betray me. The scariest scriptures in the Bible are these. Is it me? They don't know who it is. They've been with this guy three and a half years. They can't figure out who it is. That is very troubling to me. Peter says to John, John is sitting next to Jesus, got his head on his breast. Peter says to John, ask him if it's me. I'm sure they probably, well, you know who it is. Got to be Peter. And Peter says, ask him if it's me. Notice this. John doesn't ask him that question. John asks Jesus, is it me? Judas is totally hidden. Nobody knows who he is. He's not like Jezebel. He doesn't make a big old, ha, 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 scaring everybody. He is totally hidden until Jesus says, let's make a covenant. Let's take, this is my body. This is my blood. Judas goes, time to get out of here. Why? How did he betray Jesus? With a kiss. Why? Because the Judas spirit wants intimacy without covenant. It is so alive in our world. That's why people live together without marriage. Why? They want intimacy without covenant. And it's so alive in the church. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. And then you know what he does? He sells his relationship. His relationship's for sale for 30 pieces of silver. You ask people, why don't you get married? They go, oh, because, you know, we'll lose our welfare. You know, we both have this. And if we get married, we'll lose part of our wealth. That's the 30 pieces of silver. They go, oh, it's just a piece of paper. Really? Why don't you sign it then? I'll tell you why you don't sign it. The reason why you don't sign it is because you're saying, I'm in this relationship for what I can get out of it. And a covenant means I'm in this relationship for what I can give. See, if I'm in a relationship for what I can get out of it, I don't know how you're going to behave five years from now. If you, you may not treat me well five years from now, and I may have to get out of this relationship. So I don't want to sign a piece of paper and say, I'll be with you forever, because if I do that, you might get really secure and start treating me bad. So 
So I want to keep you on the edge of I may leave any time. That's why I don't sign a piece of paper. And our marriage is, our, our relationship is based in fear. And that's the church. If we don't do the right thing, people won't come. And I want to propose to you that we're moving into a new era where they go, Daddy, that's my shepherd's voice. Daddy. Are you with me? Children were never to be born. (laughs) Well, I can feel it's heavy in here today. You know, in society, it's commonplace for children to be born on a one-night stand. And of course, every Sunday morning, they are too. The music gets just right. I'm going to say, who wants to receive Jesus when someone raises their hand? And we count them. 300 people saved this month. That's funny because our attendance only grew by 10. What happened to them? Oh, I don't know. Because I never had a plan to have sons. Just reproducing Christians. Nobody's responsible for all these people we're giving birth to. And what happens? They go out into the world after they've been born again. And we give them a Bible and a prayer. A Bible they don't know how to read. They don't know what it means. And, you know, three years later, you see them on the street. You know, they're in the midst of a divorce, and you say, you need Jesus. They say, I tried that. And what happened? They got inoculated. They got just enough of Jesus to keep them from the real thing. But somebody counted them as a victory. I want to propose to you that evangelism is pretty simple. The bride and the bridegroom, they love each other, and out of that comes children. Like, I have three children who are married. I didn't have to tell them how to have children. They had to go to a class to figure out how to stop having them. <laughs> if you have a healthy relationship with your husband, it's funny how you figure out how to make all that work. Now, I don't mean you don't need a little advice and all. You don't need a dandy silk in your life. <laughs> That's typically after you're about seven months and you're like, oh, well, no, we don't know what to do. You know what I mean? Evangelism is strange, the way we teach evangelism. It's like, it's something you do. Well, you talk to the person this way, and it's all about getting them to pray a prayer with you. That's weird. Yes, I led someone to Jesus. Where are they? Oh, I don't know. You led someone to Jesus, and you don't have any plan for raising them? No. Well, it would have been better if you hadn't had children yet then, wouldn't it? 